Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Now, uh, I have a talk uh, this morning that has been really inspired by some of the conversations that I've had with uh, many of you in the community. Now, many of you in the community in our talks, uh, you know, we've often land on this question. And the question is this, how do we faithfully live as Christians? How do we faithfully live as people who are called by Jesus to preach, to herald the gospel in a time that is as contentious, as polarizing, as confusing as the days that we're living in? How do we live faithfully as Christians in contentious times? Now, the events of the last few weeks have been troubling and provoking to say the least. There's been a lot of um, you know, controversy surrounding a particular Pixar movie that's been just released, uh, to a hotel's rejection of a same-sex wedding and subsequent apology, to the re- recent overturning of Roe v. Wade uh, in the US. Now, polarizing and contested does not even begin to describe the confusing and complex times that we're living in. Now, some of us, you know, in view of all that is happening, would be tempted to adopt a more moderate stance, right? They live their truth, I live my truth. They do their thing, I live my faith. You know, what's the big deal anyway? And so we often are more prone to privatizing our faith and trivializing the issue. Or maybe some of us here are more prone to adopting a more antagonistic stance. It's an us versus them kind of mentality, uh, you know, where we draw clear lines of separation. They are dangerous. We have to be wary of them. They are a threat to our faith. Personally, I think neither of these approaches are faithful in the way of Jesus. We aren't called to be moderate or tolerant for tolerance sake, nor are we to wage war against another. And so the question we we land with is this, what does it mean to be in the world, but not of it? What does it mean to live faithfully as Christians in a time such as this? Now my goal today isn't to share our positions on all of the cultural issues we face in our day. Now I'd like to admit, first of all, that I've not done a superb job in making sure that our pulpit uh, readily addresses all of these cultural issues. While I'm personally inclined to doing so more over a dialogue rather than a one-way kind of teaching, I really believe in, in the power of conversation, hearing you know, where we stand on different views and hearing stories. While I'm convicted about you know, the power of conversation and dialogue, at the same time I'm convicted that part of our teaching must encompass thoughtful engagement with culture. We must preach the gospel in such a way that it deconstructs cultural idols and proclaims the gospel as the fulfillment of all personal and existential longings in our world. My commitment to you is that in time, we will do so. We will make clear and known our position if we so have one. Now, my heart for us today, you know, in light of what I said, is that in light of all that's happening in our world, we will not grow to be a people who are disengaged, fearful, nor people who are outraged and violent, whatever that means to you. But we will be informed and inspired by God's word, by scripture today. We will look to the words of Jesus, the words of the writers of the New Testament, on how we ought to live as faithful followers of Jesus in these complex times. And so today we'll look at, you know, of course we'll look at God's word. 
if you don't look at God's word on a Sunday, you should probably have me fired. But we also look at the examples of our brothers and sisters, particularly in the early church, who irrefutably lived through contentious, perilous, dangerous times, and yet their faith stood firm and it lasted through the days. Now, you may not live today with many how-tos or what's, but I pray today that the Spirit will speak to you regard, regarding how you ought to live as a faithful witness in the arenas you have access to. This message, no, uh, we, the goal is not to live with, like, here are three steps to living as a more faithful witness, but the goal is it will begin this dialogue that you are to have the Holy Spirit and how you ought to live faithfully in our world today. Amen? And so let's uh, all read this morning's uh, teaching text together from 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have a Bible, so you may whip them out. I hear no rustling of pages. Breaks my heart, folks. Breaks my heart. Take out your phones and swipe away. Uh, the slides are on our app. Here are the word of the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We'll skip down to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is good news, folks. Last, last uh, passage. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. My sermon title this morning is this, live such good lives. Live such good lives. And this is, of course, referring from uh, the text that we just read. Live such good lives. Among the pagans, that though they accuse you of wrong, they may see your good deeds. Glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, this is my pastoral zeal and heart for all of you, that you will live such good lives, that you live lives of consequence, that you live lives that testifies of the glory of God, that you will live a life that glorifies Him. We've been asking the question uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and that is, how do we faithfully bear witness to the gospel in our day? Does it look like passing out tracts? Does it look like recommending Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis? Does it look like putting up a concert and then offering a free gift and having people come and then, you know, they all bait and switch? Does it look like threatening people with thoughts of eternal damnation? What does it look like to preach the gospel faithfully in our day where the gospel to many is more bad news than good news? Where it's a kind of threat, not a welcome but it brings about thoughts of oppression rather than liberation. 
It's light of that that we look to scripture and the witness of the early church under persecution. We discover that for the early church, most of what we would call evangelism was simply people living a radically different life, living such a good life. And then scores of people were drawn in by the beauty of the gospel and millions would give their lives for that gospel. So as always, let's begin with a word of prayer as we look into this morning's teaching. Bow your heads. Jesus, indeed, we are here not to be educated, but to encounter you. You who are living, you who are seated at the right hand of the Father. God, this day we approach your scriptures with trembling in our hearts, recognizing that you have something to say to us. Regardless of where we're at in life or in faith, God, you can speak to us. And God, we look to you this day as the author and the perfecter of our very faith. We pray, Jesus, won't you meet with us here today? Lord, I thank you that it's not by eloquence nor research that lives are transformed, but we are transformed when we behold you, when we see you, when we encounter you, O oh Jesus. So Lord, I pray for every heart here in this room. May every heart come alive in your presence. May every heart be receptive to receive God what you wish to say, far beyond my words. Lord, I pray that every single person, in the faith I believe, every single person will live here with a word from you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I'd like to introduce to you to someone uh, who was an early follower of uh, Jesus and what many would call a follower of the way. And this is a, a, a person named Perpetua. Now, Perpetua was born in 18, uh, 182 AD to a wealthy family in Carthage. She was one of many who became early followers of the way, or what we will now call Christian. She was an early Christian. And sometime after the birth of her daughter, the Roman Emperor Septimus Severus forbade conversion to Christianity. And a state-sanctioned genocide of Christians broke throughout the Roman world. Perpetua was arrested and put in jail, and it was likely uh, because you know, she was from a wealthy family and it was to make an example of her. And all she needed to do in prison was basically to you know, uh, recant her confession, acknowledge Caesar as Lord and put some incense on the altar. And that was all she needed to do to go back to her husband and her infant. It was just to recant her confession and confess that Caesar was Lord. That was it. Now her father in hearing her imprisonment backed her begged her to recant. He said this, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. It was an honor-shame culture, and so this was deeply shameful for the family. He said, think of your brothers, think of your mother, think of your aunt, think of your child, who will not be able to live once you're gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Now, can you imagine being placed in this moment of decision between your family, your child, your life, an almost certain death. Instead, Perpetua would say over and over again to the Roman magistrate, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. 
Now the story goes, in, in prison, Perpetua had a vision in the middle of night. In the vision, she saw this ladder reaching up to the heavens, and below the ladder was a dragon guarding it. She walked past the dragon and climbed up the ladder, and as she reached the summit of the ladder, she was greeted with this immense and vast garden. In the middle, she saw a, a, a man in grey, dressed like a shepherd, surrounded by thousands of men, women, and children. And as she approached the shepherd, the shepherd said, welcome my child, and she, he offered her a piece of cheese, she ate it, and it was sweet to her mouth, and then she woke up. And it was then she knew that she was gonna die, and she was filled with immense peace. Finally, the governor con condemned her to be executed, and far from being enraged or terrified, Perpetua was said to return to prison in high spirits. And people began to take notice of this joy that was in, not just her heart, but her joy was in her face and the way she walked and talked. One prison guard was so moved that it was said that he began to show them great honor because he realized that they possessed some kind of great power. Now, in the Acts of the Christian Martyrs, it accounts for Perpetua's story and says this, that the day of their victory Dawn. This is the day of their martyrdom. And they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully as though they were going to heaven. With calm faces, trembling if at all, with joy rather than fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step. She began to sing a psalm. She screamed as she was struck on a bone. Then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator who was afraid of committing this act. And she herself guided that sword to her throat. It says this, that it was as though so great a woman, feared as she was by the unclean spirit, could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. Now, what inspired Perpetua to be so courageous and so joyful in the face of certain death? What inspired her to remain faithful to the end? Now, her story is particularly troubling to me because I have a one-year-old daughter. In many ways, I can relate with Perpetua's father's cries and pleas, begging her to recant her confession. Just do it. Just say it. You don't have to mean it. Just deny Jesus. I'm sure he understands. And I know that I will be so tempted to respond as Perpetua's father did, to beg my daughter Sage to forsake her faith in Christ. Yet, Perpetua refused to yield even to the pleas of her fathers, the cries of a baby, the scorn of the crowds. For the sake of Christ, she happily submitted herself to death. She made a decision, folks, not between life or death, but between faithfulness to Jesus and to what the Bible calls the world. Her courage and determination only reminded to her executioners that perhaps there was more to these Christians than meets the eye. Perhaps what they actually believed was true. Perpetua was one of millions of Christians who were brutally murdered in the first three centuries of the church. But folks, rather than snuffing out the Christian movement, this persecution, these martyrs, their death actually fanned the flame of the Holy Spirit upon the early church, and the church grew exponentially. Tertullian famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the Christians, as Tertullian said, became seed, inspiring believers and impressing or even enraging pagans. Spectators wonder, where did these Christians find their courage? What kind of faith could inspire such sacrifice? 
Now today, like Perpetua, followers of Jesus are still being killed for their faith. In some parts of the world, Christians disappear from their homes in the middle of the night. Missiologist David B. Barrett estimates that 160,000 Christians were martyred in the year 2000 alone. Now, it's easy for us to forget this in first world Singapore. Now, while we may not face the threat of persecution, there is undoubtedly a rising hostility that we experience as followers of Jesus. For all who hold fast to a biblically faithful ethic, there is a kind of hostility that we experience in our culture today. While we are not facing a Roman Empire or Caesar, there are still forces that we are to contend against. It was Churchill that once said that the empires of the future will be empires of the mind. And it was almost with foresight he could predict that the future battles and the future wars won't be about territory, but about ideology. Now, folks, we will all have to face moments of decision in our life where we have to choose between Jesus and the ideologies of the world. But what if this isn't something to fear? What if this isn't bad news, but good news? What if there's a rich gift waiting for all of us on the other side of persecution? What if there's a rich gift waiting for us on the other side of death to self? What if there's a gift found in suffering for the sake of the gospel? Jared Sitzer writes this, we will never understand Christian spirituality, what it is and what makes it unique, unless we grasp the significance of martyrdom. The early Christians died because they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. His Lordship challenged all other ultimate claims on their lives, wealth, status, power, and Rome itself. They believe that Jesus tolerates no rivals. When forced to choose, they chose to follow Jesus, no matter what the price. Early martyrs paid an extreme price that their very lives, but the value of the example is not in the martyrdom itself, however noble and courageous, but it is found in their commitment to Christ's Lordship that we might not have to die for Christ is irrelevant. How we live for Christ is the real issue. Folks, Jesus taught his followers this. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Woe to you when all people speak well to you. If you have a good reputation in all circles, if everyone speaks nice and kind things about you, if everyone likes you, there may be something wrong. He also said this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He also said this following that in Matthew 5, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now counterintuitive as it sounds, Scripture and many saints who have gone before us talk about a secret joy that is found in the midst of persecution. Paul calls it participation in Christ's suffering. You experience an intimacy with Jesus when you experience a taste of the suffering he went through to reconcile us back to him. Now, if the point of life isn't so much pleasure, nor happiness, nor success, of popularity and acclaim, but rather if it is to know God deeply, to be formed into his image, and to live as he did, sacrificially loving the other. If the greatest joy in all of existence is to experience this depth of intimacy with the one whom we call God, 
then Jesus' logic is perfectly sound. When they revile you, when they insult you, when they ostracize you, when they alienate you, when they demote you, rejoice and be glad. Now it's with that that we come to First Peter. And we're going to spend some time this morning working through the text. Really long introduction, I know. Some of you, your hearts just sang. How long is this guy going to go? Hour and a half? Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. First Peter, we're going to work through the text together. Now, Peter's epistle was written to the church scattered across the Roman Empire who were in the midst of persecution. This was at the height of Emperor Nero's persecution. Tacticus, this Roman historian, writes about the persecution. He says, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of bees, they were torn by dogs and perished or nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. This was the time that Peter was writing to. This was a church under intense persecution. And first Peter is about a call to persevere in faith and to live distinctively in the midst of hardship and cultural pressures. First Peter has this assumption of Christians following Jesus where they are a kind of cultural minority without religious protections and freedoms and where they have to navigate their faith as exiles, as ones who were displaced. Now, First Peter opens the epistle with addressing his audience this way. You who are chosen and exiled, you who are chosen and exiled, two seemingly opposing realities held together in a kind of beautiful tension. Chosen, you are beloved by God, seen and known by Him. He knows you deeply and intimately. You are beautiful, you are significant, and yet you are an exile. You're living in a land that is not your own without certain rights, privileges. You're living in a contrary host culture, fighting to preserve, to hold on to your identity. Now, while we are not geographically exiled in any way, we as a people of God can identify with being exiles because we know that the world we're living in is simply not our own. We do not belong here. We are exiles because we live in the midst of a culture that is so out of sync with God and his kingdom. Check out this letter written to the early church from an unknown author. It says this, Christians are not different from the rest in their nationality, language, or customs. They live in their own countries, but as sojourners. They fulfill all their duties as citizens, but they suffer as foreigners. They find their homeland wherever they are, but their homeland is not in any one place. They're in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey all laws, but they live higher than that required by law. They love all, but persecute them. But all persecute them. Now, we are exiles not because we've been displaced in the world, but because we have chosen to be distinct from the world. We're exiles not because of our displacement, but because of our distinctiveness. Another word that the King James uses in a scripture to describe this word exile, to translate this word exile, is the word pilgrim. We're exiles longing for God's kingdom. We are also pilgrims on a journey, journeying towards this biblical vision of holiness, of God's kingdom. Now, it's with that that we approach chapter 2. Chapter 2, if you read First Peter, is almost like a hinge. The letter starts to pivot, right? How do we actually do this? How do we actually live out our faith well? How do we actually live as exiles in the world? Peter starts off uh, chapter 2 with the word, therefore. So if you're a fan of Bible study, you know when you read therefore, you have to then turn backwards, right? 
basic English. And so Peter is saying, therefore, in light of everything that God has done for you, in light of the cross, in light of the resurrection, in light of your chosenness, your belovedness to God, your new identity as sons and daughters of the living God, you need to rid yourself. Therefore, rid yourselves. Now, this gives us a picture almost of like taking off soil or dirty clothes. One lexicon of would describe it that way. This ridding off is like taking off soil and dirty clothes. Now, when I was 15 years old, I was part of uh, this adventure leadership training camp. I know I do not look like it. But at some point in my life, you know, I had like all sorts of certification, you can imagine. I had sports climbing certification. I have a two-star in kayaking. I was phenomenal. Um, <laughs> now, I had to participate in this like four-day like, uh, training and leadership camp, and it started with like a cross-channel kayaking to Ubin, and then like we had to like do orienteering. We lived in tents. We ate out of like stuff cooked from Bunsen burners, and then we had to do like a whole bunch of like adventure stuff, you know. Uh, and our last uh, kind of like hurrah was, uh, you know, we kind of pitched tents in Chinese garden. Uh, we lived there, we stayed there, and then uh, the last task was to walk from Chinese garden all the way back to our school in Badok. Worse than army, I tell you. And so we had all this gear and all this stuff, and I had abrasion in places that I never knew existed. Uh, it was horrendous, you know, it was, it was just miserable, right? And so, you know, we are doing this trek, right, this ungodly trek from Chinese Garden all the way back to Bedok. And whenever someone, like, decided to be positive and, like, come on, guys, you can do it, we'll smack him the head and say, shut up, shut up, you know, this is horrible. Let us relish in, like, the sheer absurdity of this ass, right? 15-year-old boys walking so far, oh, my gosh, right? And so whenever someone, so it was just, like, dreary, it was just, like, for dread. Right, and so we were walking, 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 and then at some point, you know, I had this friend. I saw him kind of like move, past, move off the group, and he was just, he walked to a dustbin. And then he put on his bag, and then he opened up his bag, and he started like tossing stuff into a dustbin. He tossed like, you know, his shoes. He tossed like his canned food. He tossed like everything in his bag into the dustbin, and then he closed it up, and then he started walking. And I was like, what are you doing? They said, I don't need it anymore. What? And so why, why do I hold on to it, right? I just like throw it off and then it just makes the track easier. And I was like, that is really smart. And some of you think, right, those are like very small items, but you think one, two kg compounded over like 40 kilometers makes a whole lot of difference. And so then it started this wave of like Marie Kondo uh, <laughs> among our entire expedition group, right? People are like, this does not spark joy in me. And so they, everyone like just threw stuff away. And then by the end of it, the dustbin was just full of stuff. We got rid of all of it. Now, in some sense, we can view the words of Peter in this light. Are there, is there stuff in your life? Are there behaviors, attachments, things that you have uh, put in place in your life as certain kind of fixtures that do not add value, that actually add weight on this pilgrimage, on this journey towards holiness, towards God and his kingdom? What in your life does not contribute to this vision of holiness? What does not line up with your identity as a citizen of heaven? Peter would encourage you and say this, you need to get rid of it. Therefore, Peter says this, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, the, the sad thing about verses like this is that these are often words that we do, these are, these are words that we don't often use in our everyday vernacular, right? 
we don't go like the other day, man, he was just malice, you know, <laughs> or, or like I was slandered, you know, unless you're a lawyer, but like rarely do we use these words. And so these words often, you know, they just like, you know, they, they just you know, kind of fly over our heads and we don't really uh, seriously and weightily consider these words. Malice can be defined as a desire to harm or hurt someone. The seed, it, was translated, it can be translated as setting up a bait or a trap in order to catch somebody. It's consciously acting in an insincere way in order to trap somebody and manipulate something from them. Hypocrisy is wearing a mask, it's performing, pretending to be something you are not in order to get something over people. Envy is to resent someone else's prosperity. This leads to grudges, bitterness, gossip. Slander, this has an idea of backbiting, of destroying someone else's reputation behind their back. And so what Peter is saying is that these five behaviors, I'm sure there are many more, but he's zoning in on these five behaviors, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, they are just inappropriate and unbecoming for the people of God. Now you might wonder, how did this happen, right? Aren't these folks like the people of God? Why do they struggle with these things? Now we must remind ourselves that this was written in the context of deep, intense persecution and hardship. And it's often in such times where many would then default to self-preservation or self-serving tendencies. And before you disconnect with this, haven't we seen this played out over the last two years? When there's actual scarcity, how many of us were kind and generous and self-sacrificial? Many of us defaulted to self-serving, self-preservational tendencies, and that was what was happening to the people of God in this time. Now let's pause for a second and respond to this. In your heart right now, is there anybody in your life that you do not wish God's best for? Instead, you wish to harm them. You wish for harm to come upon them. Or when they, have, when, when they encounter a kind of setback or stumble, you secretly rejoice in your heart. There's envy. Malice, is there anybody that you don't wish God's best for them? Someone you loathe, you don't want them to thrive or succeed. The scene and hypocrisy, are you acting one way in front of a group of people and acting another way behind their back so that you can trick them, manipulate them? Envy, are you envious of other people? Maybe you see someone further on in life getting ahead and you think they don't deserve it. Your heart is filled with bitterness. Slander, do you find yourself criticizing other people, gossiping, spreading misinformation, ruining reputations? Now, we don't normally bring these behaviors to light, right? We don't often confess that I'm just a malicious person. I just like, slander is like my pastime. You know, we don't, we don't think that way or we don't often acknowledge these behaviors, these thoughts. Now, these traits can often be subtle and hidden. And because of how subtle and hidden these traits are, they can gradually become nuanced, unexamined attitudes of our heart that get woven into our personality. And over time, we can't distinguish between these traits and who we are as a person. They're not the most obvious or outrightly immoral, but it's precisely these little things that creep up, sinking roots and choke out all that God wants to do in our life. Now, maybe you, like me, in hearing this, want to desperately rid yourselves of all these behaviors, but you just don't know how. You just can't begin to fathom how you would begin to do so. And Peter would say that theological understanding, self-will alone simply won't suffice. We need an alternative power. It's with that we look at verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk 
so that you may grow up in your salvation. That word crave means to long, to strain after, to desire greatly. It was used in David's psalm, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. It's used to describe a hunger that once it is satisfied, you get hungry all over again. This might be some of your life. It describes right, a husband's longing for his wife when he's in love. It describes his longing for someone close who had recently passed. It's used to describe a parent's longing for a wayward child. It's an intense, deep, visceral longing. Crave pure spiritual milk. In the NKJV, it translates it this way. Pure milk of the word. Crave the pure milk of the word. Peter's response to our former way of life is to replace it with a deep, intense longing for God's word, for God's truth, so that it disrupts and expels it. Crave pure spiritual milk. Tozer once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's why in the book of Genesis, the serpent didn't come to Adam and Eve with you know, an army or with a weapon. He came to them with an idea. He planted into their minds an idea, a distorted view about God. And these ideas are dangerous because what we think about God ourselves and what life is shape who we become and shape how we live. Now we live in a world full of ideas, right? TED Talks, podcasts, blog posts, we're presented with hundreds upon hundreds of ideas each day. And the dangerous thing is that every idea we digest does something to us. It shapes who we become. And so if we want to follow Jesus well in our time and place, we need to rediscover a fidelity to Scripture, a fidelity to God's holy word, to crave pure spiritual milk that cuts through the noise of our culture. Paul would say this, and we also thank God continually because when you have received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now moving down to verse 9. It says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, this might not sound good news, like good news to you. This might sound like something that you know, we recite in church often. But think of the people that this text was written to. It was written to a people who were politically exiled by Rome, who didn't have the necessary ancestry to be royalty or to serve as priests in God's temple. They were ostracized, persecuted, and unseen by society. And Peter would say this to this very group of people, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is the gospel. You are chosen, not forsaken or rejected. You are royal, not common. You are holy, not sinful. You are special, called, seen, loved by God, by the God of all creation, who above all that he has made says that you are special. You are his favorite possession you are treasure to him you belong once you are not a people but now you are the people of God now in his book uh, Atomic Habits James Clear introduces a theory on why we exercise restraint 
and how we actually form lasting habits. And he talks about two kinds of restraint. The first is outcome restraint, meaning we consider the outcome, we weigh the pros and cons, and then we decide to not do something. But he theorizes of another kind of restraint, which is identity restraint. In this research, this is what creates lasting change, meaning we choose not to do something because it's simply not who we are. And that is what Peter is saying. In light of your election, in light of your chosenness, in light of God calling you as beloved, in light of your belonging to this family that we call the family of God, in light of all that he has done for you, in light of the resurrection, in light of the cross, live out of this identity is no longer who you are. You are chosen, not forsaken. You're holy, not sinful. Now there's this story of St. Augustine before he was St. Augustine. And let's just call him Augie. He, uh, Augie lived such a promiscuous life. Uh, before he became St. Augustine, started to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, he was, you know, the story, history tells us that he was living such a promiscuous life. And he once described his own heart as a cauldron of lust. It's a cauldron of lust. And he was famous for praying, God, give me self-control, but just not yet. And you know, his whole life was steeped in lust and promiscuity or sleeping around and giving to his base carnal desires. And the story goes, he had this encounter when he was reading the book of Romans that wrote about putting to death the deeds of the flesh and stepping into the light. And he decided to do so and he intentionally decided to live out of this identity. And sometime down the road, uh, story goes, he was in town and he ran into one of his ex-lovers. And now this ex-lover went up to Augustine and whispers to him and says, Augustine, it is I. And then he replies, yes, but it is no longer I. Identity restraint. Identity restraint. Finishing up uh, that passage in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That word friends there you know, really translates better as beloved. Beloved. Here we hear Peter's pastoral heart for his people. Beloved. We hear not words of anger, nor angst or anxiety, but we hear deep love and desire for them to thrive to live out their faith well, to finish this race well. Hear Peter's heart in this text. Dear friends, I urge you, abstain from sinful desires. Saying don't give in to your primal base appetites, what the New Testament writers would call the flesh. Don't be, as Paul would write, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now these sinful desires, whether we choose to admit it or not, are in every one of us. These bodily appetites, which are mostly good desires that have been perverted and distorted out of context for sexual fulfillment without boundaries, for greed and consumption without boundaries, for domination over others. These desires, whether we're honest or not, are in all of us. And Peter would say that they wage war against your soul. They do damage to you. They choke out the life of God in you. They cut us off from in the mercy with him. And instead he says this, here's the counter call. Live such good lives among the pagans. Live such good lives. That word good can be translated as beautiful, as fair, 
or compelling. Live such good lives. It's not just it's not a thought of like success or having a lot of money or like having a ton of favor or acclaim. This this good is it's it finds its roots, its origins in scripture. It isn't defined by worldly kind of definitions or matrices, but it's defined by scripture. Live good, beautiful, fair, compelling lives. And notice this it's among others. It's not separate in a cave elsewhere. If you're thinking about buying a cave and living out the Armageddon, no, that is not what the core scripture is. But right in the thick of it, right in the thick of it, shoulder to shoulder with the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong. For the church then, is though they blame you for the fires in Rome, though they accuse you of cannibalism, though they accuse you of incest because you, you know, you <laughs> call each other brothers and sisters and have a gathering called a love feast, which is a bit strange for the general public. You greet each other with a holy kiss, though they accuse you of incest. Though they accuse you of making their gods angry and bringing judgment upon Rome. And for us today, it's though you, they accuse you of bigotry. Though they accuse you of being on the wrong side of history. Though they accuse you of being stupid and uneducated. Though they accuse you of being bad for society rather than good. Though you have been wronged, live such good lives that they may see your good deeds. Notice here again, it is not that they may hear your summons or may read what you post on Instagram or what color shirt you wear on a certain day. They may see your good deeds. Not merely what you say, but what you do, how you live especially for who Jesus calls the least of these. Now, I'm bringing this to a landing shortly. Now, there's this beautiful book uh, titled The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, and I encourage you to pick it up. It's written by an author named Alan Creeder. And he writes how the early church in the second century, because of the persecutions they faced, had to make their weekly gatherings a secret. And so, no, they wouldn't be able to invite, like, people like we do in church today. They had to make it a secret. Why? Because whenever someone who was not a believer came to the gatherings, the person would either get saved or that person would go and report the gathering to the Roman magistrate and then the Roman legions would come and slaughter the entire gathering. So they didn't have the option of making the gathering public. They had to make their weekly gatherings a secret. Now, because of that, it created this fascinating dynamic in the early church where non-Christians looked to Christians not through their worship gatherings, their programs, or their meetings, but through the way they live their lives, through their public lives. Instead, all they could see were Christians themselves, how they did money, how they did sex, how they did family, business, and ethics, their public life. And it was because of their public life, their public outworking of their faith, their lifestyle, that was what attracted them to the faith. It was not the lights, the sound, the production, the programs, the way the service was built, the scones, the teas after service. It was the Christians themselves. He would say this, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders, it was Christians who attracted them. And outsiders found the Christians attractive because of their Christian lifestyle and practices which their spiritual formation and worship had formed. Michael Green, a historian, writes this, 80% or more of the evangelism in the early church was done by ordinary Christians just explaining their life to their friends and family. Why do you live like that? Why do you honor her like that? Why are you so kind? There must be something to you. 
And the question is this, you know, for all of us, when was the last time someone asked you a question about the way you lived your life? Let's see New Beginner has this amazing quote. He says this, to live in the kingdom in such a way that provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer. We are called to live a thought-provoking, a question-provoking faith. It was their way of life together, their love for another, their joy in suffering, their generosity in scarcity, their kindness in harshness that led people to believe. And so we arrive here at the last line. As we quietly defy the brokenness of the world that we live in, as we serve, as we love, as we do good, we arrive at the last line. It says this, and glorify God on the day he visits us. Are you still with me, folks? What was once bad news, persecution, accusation has now turned into good news. The promise of God with us, and God glorified through us. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Peter here is just riffing off and gleaning from what Jesus had said in the Beatitudes. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He says, as you are the light of the world, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it on a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Glorify your Father in heaven. Notice here again, for both Jesus and Peter, in the time where they were facing certain death, did not respond with anger, vitriol, outrage, or violence. Instead, they responded with this quiet, confident invitation to live such a good life, to live in a provocative manner that preaches the gospel. See here, the call of Jesus isn't just for believers to preach the good news. It's for us to become a good news people. It's for us to embody the kingdom, not just talk about it. The early church did this and it changed the world forever. The word to sum up this way of living is the New Testament word witness. It's the word witness that we see in the Bible. Acts 1.8 says this, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Jesus does not call for us to pitch the gospel to skeptics, nor to argue our intellectuals. Instead, he calls for his believers to simply be his witnesses, to share of what they've seen, heard, and experienced. It's not to close the deal with the right technique of emotional manipulation. It's not to dangle a carrot. It's not to seize power or influence for the kingdom, a kind of dominionism, but it's to be his witnesses in word and in deed. Now, a final thought. It's interesting that the Greek word for witness that we read off in the Bible is the word matus. It's where we get the word martyr from. Martyr. Now, this is no coincidence because in the first century, to be a witness is synonymous with being a martyr. For us, while literal death is not a threat, at least in this point of history, there is a kind of death that we must embrace in hearing, in bearing witness to the gospel in our time and place. G.K. Chesterton, this great theologian, once wrote of St. Francis of Assisi and said that St. Francis embraced martyrdom as a way of life. Martyrdom as a way of life. He says, for the sake of Christ, he learned to die daily to gods of ego, pleasure, power, and success. Though he never suffered literal martyrdom, his commitment to Christ required him to die to self. Now, maybe for you this day in hearing all of this, 
asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to live such a good life, a compelling life, a life that testifies preachers of the gospel that glorifies God in the midst of this contentious time where Christian doctrine alone isn't suffice to convince people are looking, seeking for a life that compels. Maybe for you it's a death to comfort. Maybe for you it's a death to affluence. Maybe it's a death to reputation. Maybe it's a death to others' view of you. Maybe it's death to certain relationships or death to career ambition. Where increasingly so more and more jobs are incompatible with what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in the world. Where working for certain companies and what is required of you to climb the ladder of success is just incompatible with following Jesus well. Maybe as parents, it's death to our vision and plans for our children. Maybe we need to walk the road that Perpetua's father did and expect our children to live a life of great sacrifice. We have to come to terms with this idea that to raise our children in the way of Jesus is to raise them in a manner where they are utterly precious and favored of God and yet concurrently repulsive to the majority of culture. Folks, the time ahead of us is going to get more and more contested, polarizing, confusing. It's observed that the more secular society becomes, the more privatized our faith will be demanded to be. Most of us will not have to die for our faith. Though it might come to that even for those living here at some point. But we will all face moments when we will have to choose between Christ and something else that advise for our ultimate allegiance. The call of Jesus is literal death for some, but death to self for all. And as hard as this all sounds, it is a small price to pay. Not because of the magnitude of sacrifice, but the magnitude of the reward that's on the other side. We close with the words of Paul, a man who has lost so much for following Jesus. He says this, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly can't say this for my own life. I certainly want the life of Jesus. But the cross comes before resurrection, Good Friday before Easter, shameful death before a glorious life, death to self before life in the kingdom. Now, may this be so among us. In closing, you know, I have a few reflection questions I'll put up on screen. Uh, and you know, the questions are stuff that you, know, you can just take home and ponder and reflect upon. What do you primarily identify as? You know, as a citizen of the world or as a foreigner in exile, one whose home is not ultimately this world? Is there anything that you need to put to death that you would embrace martyrdom as a way of life? To put to death things that do not contribute, that do not add value, that weigh you down on this journey towards holiness? And how can you begin to live a good life that draws others to Christ? What if martyrdom doesn't just look like death in a Roman arena, but what if martyrdom looks like a million 
deaths that leads to one massive life, a choosing to die daily, to deny ourselves of our carnal desires, to abstain from things that lead us out of sync with God's way, to choose not a way of comfort, but a way of Christ in the midst of option. What if martyrdom looks like a million deaths that leads to one massive life? And what if we are all called to die that way, to live the life as purple to our deeds? Amen. Can we all stand? Amen. Now I close off with reading you a story, and I've done this. I've read this story uh, to our congregation uh, some years ago. But uh, it's it's a story written by Philip Yancey in his book Rumors of Another World. It tells the story of a remarkable life, Ernest Gordon, who was a British officer captured by the Japanese in World War II. The story goes: Gordon was put to work uh, building the Burma Siam Railway through a thick. Uh, Thai jungle for a potential invasion of India. Now the Japanese then hated anyone who were willing to surrender rather than die, and their treatment of soldiers were utterly appalling. It was said that some 80,000 men died building that particular railroad. And just like we know about the audience in First Peter, this was a time for those living in that camp of great pressure and scarcity. Now the prison camp was a case study of survival of the fittest. People fought, attacked, schemed for the most meager of possessions. Selfishness and hate were said to be the ethos of the camp. Now, uh, one of the returning work crews, uh, the story goes, uh, when they went back and they did an inventory of uh, the supplies, they noticed a missing shovel. And the Japanese guard, in uh, finding this out, began shouting and screaming at all who had returned and said that if this shovel was not returned, we will begin to shoot the prisoners. Now, tension blanketed the group as the soldier lifted his rifle to begin shooting. And then one man it was said, stepped forward and said, it was I who misplaced it. And he was brutally beaten to death. Now, later in that evening, uh, when they were doing a fresh inventory of the tools, they realized that they had actually just miscounted the inventory and the shovel was there all along. Now, this act of selfless love transformed the ethos of the camp. One of the prisoners remembered Jesus' words, no greater love has any man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Now, the truth of that verse began to shake that camp. And Gordon recalls, he said, therefore still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from his destructive grip. Yancey goes on to explain how the kingdom of God began to break through in that camp. And in the midst of hell, the hell of war, the beauty of heaven shone through. They started pulling their gifts, their talents, and the prisoners uh, pulled together to form a jungle university. Gordon himself would teach philosophy and ethics, and the university offered courses in history, philosophy, economics, math, natural sciences, and at least nine languages. They built a church as a sacred place of worship. They made their own paint and set up galleries. Uh, they treated their guards who had tortured and brutalized them with such kindness and compassion. And Yancey concludes this story with these profound words. Perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favorite topic, the kingdom of God. In the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. It lives with hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements, 
advance of that coming reign. How can the church live in light of these contentious times where there's a rising hostility to what we affirm to be truth, to what we affirm to be the gospel of Jesus? It's when we live in a manner that provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer, when we begin to capture this vision of living such a good life, though they may accuse you, though they may wrong you, live such good lives that your good deeds may glorify God on the day He visits us. Amen. Let's respond uh, in prayer as we go back to worship together. Jesus, we want to respond to your words this day. First of all, we admit how these times have been confusing. Many of us are uncertain of how we ought to respond in light of these complex times. God, for where we have gone seeking for answers, for where we have tried to make sense of it on our own, Lord, we ask that you would tether not just our minds, but our hearts back to you even this day. Lord, we pray above and beyond being a people with answers and responses. Let us be a people marked with such profound goodness. Let us be a people that live such good lives among the pagans. Let us be a people that will not shy away from doing good to even those who wrong us. Let us be a people who are known to love the poor, the weak, the lowly. Let us be a people known for non-violent retaliation, but instead offering the other chick in kindness, in meekness, in gentleness. And Lord, we pray, sear in our hearts a vision for living a compelling life. May we live such thought-proving, such question-provoking lives that many will be drawn to you, Jesus, not by our own merits or efforts, but by the renewing work that you're doing in us. So we lift our hands before you this day and we say, Holy Spirit, Come breathe upon us afresh. Help us in your grace to rid ourselves of all malice, envy, deceit, hypocrisy, and slander. We want to live into this biblical vision of holiness that you have given to us. We admit that we cannot do it in our own strength. We need you. So Jesus, we ask, before we talk about mission, before we talk about going out, before we talk about responses, won't you do a deep work in us? Renew your work in us. We pray in your name. Amen.